0: This is Maxine and the Planet's Unknown, a sci fi audiobook in podcast form, written by, performed by, and produced by Brad Lawrence. That's me, to quote Karina Longworth. Before we get started, one small note on the sound quality. I am not recording this in a studio, I am recording this in the tiny side room of my Brooklyn apartment during a pandemic. All around my apartment are the sounds of ambulance sirens because of the pandemic and children trying to get just a little bit of outdoor time on the concrete splotch that passes for a backyard in an apartment in Brooklyn. So I have done my absolute best to soundproof against this as much as I can, but Brooklyn pandemic, ambulances, children. For God's sake, think of the children, and do your best to enjoy what I think is a pretty good story, in spite of what may be some occasionally imperfect audio. Thank you. Maxine and the Planets Unknown, Chapters 4 and 5 Chapter 4 There are things in life that we all take for granted. One thing Maxine took for granted was the notion of people-sized pathways. Having grown up in an environment... That had been meticulously planned for human habitation, her entire life was led in corridors that were exactly wide enough for three average-sized people to pass through with exactly 10 centimeters to spare on either side. This was the amount of space that was needed to keep a population of between two and four thousand, depending on population growth, from having any kind of claustrophobia induced breakdown and murdering one another. Or so said the mass psychology expert, Linus Cadell, who had been acting consultant on the Kentucky's construction. Maxine had no notion of her home being constructed to maintain her psychological stability. It was just home. She lived there, and she lived with people, and people had to go places, generally without constantly bumping into one another. And so, there were passages that accommodated this. Three persons wide, in the habitation area, much broader on the promenade, and one person-wide in the service and maintenance areas. But, up until three weeks ago, there had never been any people on Oxalus. On this part of the planet, there were no large animals at all. That was why they had chosen to land where they did. They actually didn't choose their landing spot until they were in orbit. It was a long and excruciating process that kept everyone on the ship in a state of Christmas Eve anticipation for a little over a month. Picking a landing spot went like this. One of the advanced probes they'd sent out long before the Kuntiki's launch had, upon completing its survey scans and transmitting the data back to Earth Orbit Station 2, where the ship had been built, then assumed a geosynchronous orbit around Oxalus. This meant that every day, it returned to the same spot over the planet's equator. However, each day upon reaching that spot, it made a tiny pre-calculated adjustment to its flight path. The goal here was to scan as much of the planet as possible. What it was scanning for were life patterns, weather patterns, and cataclysmic events. Generally, it kept this information to itself. All space travel is about resource allocation. It would take greater energy, to have the probe continuously broadcast data back to its home base and or the Kantiki, than it would to have it store the information for download when the emigres arrived. Upon their arrival, about four decades of data was downloaded from the probe and a team of techs were assigned to create a report that summarized all the major planetary events and identifiable patterns. Then the debarkation committee, an esteemed bunch of people who mostly held one another in very little esteem gathered to review the report and to decide where to deposit the population of the Kontiki. They were looking for a place that wouldn't suddenly turn into an eight-month icy waste come wintertime. That had happened at the landing site of the Plathoic on Obama Two. Or, that there wouldn't suddenly be giant predatory mole things that emerged from the ground after a five-year hibernation period and started raiding emigre encampments, as had happened to the unfortunate population of the Akan on planet Shai-Sen. There was one colony that had put down on a nice grassy patch of planet surface, only to discover that the grass itself was migratory and omnivorous. Three people died before they were able to move the entire encampment out of the path of the organism they had come to call the blood carpet. Which seemed a little dramatic to Maxine, but then she had lost neither a foot nor a whole child, so who was she to judge? The last two centuries had seen the explosion of extrasolar migration. The combination of perfecting near-light travel the stability of artificial atmospheres, and most vitally, humanity's ability to identify and track habitable planets led to a mass exodus. For centuries, we had thought Earth was alone in the universe, or one of very, very few. Turned out, there were vastly more habitable worlds out there than we had ever dared to imagine. And once we had gotten to a few, once getting out and starting over had proved to be a not-fatal possibility, the people of Seoul had flung themselves into the galaxy with near-ecstatic abandon. Then, a few eggs got broken in the process of making this planetary colonization omelette, and people started rethinking the whole thing. More to the point, they started wanting their money back suddenly it seemed like a better idea to stay right where they were and use those credits to spruce up the place. The three bigs, as the three major corporations who had come to dominate the immigration industry had come to be known, had gotten together to come up with a series of protocols and regulatory schemes that had been designed to do three things. First, restore consumer confidence in the whole messy business. Second, cut off Any ideas either Earth or Mars governments might get about imposing regulations on the industry by beating them to it. And third, create an expensive series of hoops that any startup immigration companies would have to jump through, and thus making it much, much harder to actually start up and challenge the market supremacy of the three bigs. All three goals had been accomplished. Slowly but surely, people started wanting to light out for the great unknown once again. Earth and Mars were placated before they even realized they needed to be placated, and with the exception of a few wildcatter outfits, transporting people out into the galaxy had remained a three-part monopoly. The company that Maxine owed her current immigrée status to was New Horizons Incorporated, NHI to its cargo. Her great-grandparents had signed their lives away to board the Kentiki to go on a trip they knew they would never see the end of, so that their children, or their children's children, could have exciting new lives. Those children had had those children's children, who eventually met one another, married, and had Maxine. Then the entire lot had died in one of the most catastrophic accidents to ever happen on a generation ship in transit. Her family had made the history books of interstellar space travel, and their status as a perpetual bar trivia question was about as far as Maxine ever let herself think about them. Besides, Sumner had done well as a last-minute paternal patch job, and sometimes letting herself linger on her natural family too much, it felt like she was being unfair to him, ungrateful though he would have been the first to tell her that was foolish. He would say it just that way, direct, precise, just the number of syllables required. Then he would awkwardly put his arm around her shoulder and squeeze her to him without making eye contact, the way he did whenever he suspected his natural laconic approach had been harsh and needed to be undercut with what he thought of as a reassuring display of physical affection. It had been that way with him from literally their first conversation. It had taken place in a makeshift clinic in a supply hangar near the hydroponic cell where where the accident had happened. Everyone had been talking like she wasn't there, like she couldn't understand words. She was nine years old, which was old enough to understand almost everything the adults around her were saying, and to get a gist of what she didn't understand from context clues. A military woman had said, What will they do with her? Maxine was the her. She was talking to a medical guy, not the doctor, not Dr. Sandoval, who did Maxine's checkups and smiled at her and rubbed her back and told her she was doing a great job whenever she took a shot or endured some other uncomfortable prodding. Like the time she didn't poop for two weeks, and her mom brought her in and stood in the corner of the exam room trying to hide how worried she was while Dr. Sandoval did the most embarrassing things and asked the most embarrassing questions. But she didn't feel embarrassed with Dr. Sandoval. Maxine could still remember her mom's face going from pinched concern to cautious relief as the doctor assured her that it was just something that happened to kids sometimes. Then she turned to Maxine and spoke directly to her, saying, "'I'm going to give you some giant chalky pills that are going to be gross and taste horrible, but they're going to fix you up, okay?' And then you're going to feel a whole lot better. How's that for a fair trade? Can you deal with it? It made Maxine feel big when Dr. Sandoval talked directly to her. Now, she felt tiny and invisible as the medical guy looked at the military woman after only briefly wincing in Maxine's direction and said, Jesus, I don't know. I don't even know if there's a protocol for this kind of thing. That was when Maxine noticed the tall man behind them. He'd been facing the other direction up until that moment, just part of the background noise of people running around, coming in from elsewhere, presumably the site of the accident, and saying things and going back out. Now he turned toward them and squinted, his mouth a flat, serious line in a rigid face. He left what he was doing and walked up to them, In the process, leaving a young woman with a pad stranded in mid-sentence. You need to take this conversation out into the hall. The medical guy looked instantly cowed. The military woman seemed to want to object, but when she looked at the man, he was no longer looking at her. He was looking at Maxine. The military woman followed his gaze, made eye contact with Maxine, turned bright red and then followed the medical guy out of the room. The man walked over and sat down next to Maxine. Do you know who I am, Maxine? Maxine did. You're the sheriff. Sumner nodded. That's my job. My name is Sumner Gray. He sat with her for a long, silent moment. Maxine stared at the floor, He watched the people moving in and out of the room. Finally, he leaned forward on his knees, opened his palms, started massaging one hand with the other. I'm going to tell you the truth now, Maxine. You're in a bad spot. And there is going to be even worse times ahead. And I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like. Tears gathered at the corner of Maxine's eyes. She was surprised that they hadn't come sooner, and that she hadn't noticed that they hadn't come. He glanced over as they started to stream down her face, but still, he went on. Here's what I can tell you. I can tell you, I can tell you that you're safe. I can tell you you have a place to go. And I can tell you that you will not be alone. I can tell you that others have survived things like this, and you will too. And I can tell you that it was hard for every single one of them as well. But they did it. You will also do it. And I can tell you that someday, maybe sooner than you expect even, someday you will feel happy about something again. And that's going to be okay. Maxine let out a sob. Sumner stared at his hands for a second longer. Then he sat upright with an uncomfortable look on his face. Uh, would it be, um, helpful to you if, uh, if you had a a hug right now? Maxine flung herself into Sumner and proceeded to make a snotty mess of his work shirt and so it was for the next six years. Maxine doubted that Sumner understood that it was the comical, fumbling nature of these well-intentioned stabs at fatherly tenderness that cheered her up and not so much the stabs themselves, but why quibble over details? Maxine's entire family notwithstanding, New Horizons had a pretty good track record of getting emigres to their desired planets and landing them there safely And part of that had to do with the debarkation protocol of meticulous scans of the planet. Those scans had revealed this isolated valley that was not too isolated, but isolated enough that it had not attracted any large grazers, who had not in turn attracted any large predators. However, there were a number of small herbivores, semi-adorable rodents mostly, who were present and that, along with the chemical scans, revealed that none of the vegetation in the landing site was lethally poisonous. Though there was a clinging vine with red leaves and yellowish flowers that no one should get near if they ever intended to leave a bathroom and have friends again. But Maxine had not seen these scans, was not part of the debarkation committee, and had given the émigré preparatory materials the most cursory of glances. Maxine was a get-out-there-and-meet-the-neighbors type, hence her standing there at the mouth of a human-sized trail, a trail that no one could have made and that she had not noticed before, and thinking nothing of it. Chapter 5 Sheriff Sumner stepped out onto the promenade and found himself exactly as alone as he had been in his own house. That was disconcerting. His quarters were at the aft end of the main thoroughfare. The sheriff's office was at the other end, with quarters for two deputies and a holding tank big enough for four people. If more than that got in trouble, Sumner had the option to use his security override to seal them in their homes. He'd had to use that once. About a quarter of the way down the promenade, and on the starboard side was the fire and emergency station, which also had a medical bay and rooms for four full time responders. Med Bay proper was about the same distance from the fore of the ship and positioned on the port side of the street. It also had some basic fire and emergency equipment and quarters for a doctor and a nurse. The sheriff's quarters and office also had emergency equipment and first aid supplies. Basically, No matter where you were on the ship, help was never very far away. And more important, help was never very far away from any part of the ship. The key to living in a confined space with thousands of people was the ability to localize and contain panic and or anger. Those two emotions had a way of spreading from one person to the next and not stopping until all the fuel of pent-up feeling that anyone might be suppressing was spent. It didn't matter if the panic and or anger was justified. People not directly involved would be creating their own panic and or anger in response. So, in times when people were worked up and working themselves up even higher, each sheriff needed a method for getting people back to ground. Sumner had perfected the technique of giving people a raw iron look, right in the eyes, and saying in a stern, hard tone, lower your voice. It worked. Even when they said, you can't talk to me that way, or you can't tell me what to do, they did so in a chastised whisper. All of this was especially true with a population like the one on the Contiki, who were particularly social. The promenade, the side streets, the catwalks, and the squares were always teeming with people. They would flow in and out of little clusters where they would talk and gossip and tell stories. They greeted one another with smiles, and often as not, they walked away laughing. The Kantiki was a community that liked each other. It was a happy, if occasionally cantankerous little town. This was not a guarantee when it came to emigre city ships. The emigrate community boards were rife with stories where shortly after launch, the entire population of a sealed ship starting on a multiple-century voyage spontaneously divided itself into resentful factions that had to be kept in check for the entire journey. But not here. This was a good place with good people, and they all knew it. So where in the hell were they? As he hoofed it down the promenade, Sumner found himself totally alone. The windows in the residential units that formed the blocks of the city streets were lit up, some of them anyway, And if he lingered, he might see the occasional bit of movement in one. So the people were still there. They hadn't disappeared overnight. They just weren't coming outside. En masse. 2,345 people, all making the same decision at once to change their normal behavior. Suddenly... No, that wasn't suspicious at all. Well, there you go. No reason for him to be out here wandering around empty streets. A sheriff's job was to keep people safe, and what could be safer than in their own homes? Totally untrue. Most of the worst stuff that happened to people happened to them in their own homes. But why quibble over undeniable statistics? The point was, there were no people here to protect and serve, so he should just haul his cop butt back to his apartment, strip down to his skivvies, and stay there until... Until... until what, exactly? Sumner had a real bad feeling that the answer to that question was, until the world goes black and all this is over. He shook loose the grimness of this sensation and kept moving. First stop would be the gaming center. If there was anyone out, at all, there was an 85% chance they'd be there. Not a day had gone by in the last hundred years that there wasn't a line for the VR coffins or clusters of a half dozen standing around the chess tables second-guessing every move of whoever was playing at that moment. If there was no one at the gaming center, then, then he'd call up to the command deck. No need to get those... No need to get them involved until he was absolutely sure there was a problem. It did not look promising. The chess tables were in the outside seating area before you got into the GC itself, and they were unoccupied. Sumner knew at least six chess obsessives by name because he had been called several times to break up conflicts that had erupted because of their refusal to stop monopolizing the tables. Even after he came down and made them get up and give someone else a turn, they would hover around and watch completely unembarrassed by the fact that their childish behavior had forced someone to call the sheriff. They would just stand there and huff, until someone who was finally being given a chance to play made a mistake so egregious that it forced the obsessive to shift into snarky commentary mode. Sumner doubted that anything short of death could get them out of umbilical cord distance of one of these gaming tables. But seeing was believing. And there was no one there. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.